Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. We talked today about a promised miracle, and we are, as said earlier, in the third week of Advent, leading up to the fourth week, and then we also have Christmas Eve, and I should have mentioned earlier in announcements that we do have a Christmas Eve service on the 24th, obviously on Christmas Eve, from 6 to 7 p.m. It'll be a one-hour service. It'll be a great time with uh, church family and friends, so we invite you to come out to that. Today, we're going to look at a couple different passages one from Isaiah 7, and one from Isaiah 9. And this is going back to the Old Testament. These are passages that you might recognize from the book of Matthew that are talking about the prophesied Messiah. And frequently, Scripture will quote, the New Testament will quote the Old Testament, but we don't have a lot of background on that. And it's almost like sometimes people think they know the story, but they don't really know the full story. Ever talk to somebody who wants to tell you about a movie, but they haven't really seen it, or they mangle everything that happened in it, and their story is not very good? You might recognize these verses, but I want to put them in context as well, because what we see frequently, the way that Scripture will employ what's what we call Bible prophecy, is that it will be mentioning something that is going to be taking place in the near future, but will have an ultimate fulfillment at some point much, much later. And that is what we see in a famous passage here from Isaiah chapter uh, 7, in verse 14, where it says, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to give an opportunity for a little bit of interaction for this verse right here. If I were to say this verse from Isaiah 7 that I just read, I'm going to read the most of uh, chapter 7 in a moment. But if I were to say, what, is this chap, what does this verse mean that I just read about the virgin giving birth? In Isaiah 7, what would you say? What was the author? Remember what I said, that there would be an immediate application of fulfillment and then perhaps something much later. And I agree that the ultimate fulfillment is Christ, the Virgin Mary and Christ. That is how the New Testament gospel writer renders it. But what was going on in context in the passage? Does anybody know? Great, we're all going to learn something today then, huh? Excellent. Read along, if you will, in Isaiah 7. We're going to read actually from verse 1 through 17, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 9, and we are going to read verses 1 through 7. So, Read along with me, if you will, in the book of Isaiah. When, and, and by the way, I'm probably going to mangle some biblical names as I am known to do, but just follow along with me. Verse 1, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees in the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct at the upper pool on the road to, of, to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's kind of a gangster insult right there, you smoldering stub of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia, 
Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will too be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject and when he knows enough to reject right and wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the right and reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now we'll go to chapter nine. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Neptali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee among the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be with us in the remainder of this service and in our meeting after service. May you speak to us from the scripture. May all of us learn something maybe we didn't know when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll flip back to chapter 7 for right now. We'll pull the theme up of our message. The theme of our message today of a promised miracle is that God keeps and honors. Nope, that's last week. Strike that. The, the theme today is God keeps and honors his promises to his people. All right, so we'll take that theme off because that's not the right one. All right, so ignore that slide there. The theme is God keeps and honors His the promises to his people. In the book of Isaiah, what we see in chapter 7 is that the people are under siege. So don't follow what's on the screen right now. Just follow me along in Scripture. If you're going to look at Scripture, it starts with King Ahaz. This is now taking place in Judah. All right, if you know your biblical history, you'll know that the 
kingdom of Israel had a united kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom split from the north into the south. And then if you read the book of First Kings and First, uh, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll have a listing of these various kings and their reigns and what took place. There were a mix of good and bad kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. All of the kings in the northern kingdom were no good. None of them followed the Lord. And in the southern kingdom, there were still another, a number of, of not-so-good kings. King Ahaz was one of them, and he's the focus of chapter 7. This is not King Ahab. That's a different kingdom of the north. Now we're talking about King Ahaz here in the south. Don't ask me why everybody had these kind of rhyming weird names. But now this is taking place in Judah, and the north kingdom and the south kingdom are at odds with one another. The north is conspiring with Syria and several other nations. I'm just giving you the background on what's going on here. So the north kingdom is conspiring with Syria and several other nations to plunder the south. And Ahaz is distressed about this. So really what you have here is brother against brother. Their ancient lineages are now at odds. Now, the Syrians and the Assyrians, I know this gets kind of confusing, but the Syrians and the Assyrians are different groups. The Assyrians eventually come in and take over the entire territory. But the north didn't want to be under rule of the Assyrians, so now they are colluding, conspiring with the Syrians and some other groups to lay siege to the southern kingdom. Ahaz is distressed about this. Isaiah, who is a prophet, who is now coming to Ahaz to give him this message that basically this isn't going to happen, this Syrian invasion from the north. And he says, I'm going to give you a sign. That the, well, first he says, ask the Lord for the sign. And Ahaz says, well, I, I, can't, I can't ask for that. I'm not, can we just kill the slides? Can we just turn it off completely? Let's just do that because it's kind of bugging me. Not your fault. Why don't we just get rid of it? Let's just get rid of it. Things happen sometimes. That's okay. All right. So in any event, he says, ask the Lord for a sign. And Ahaz says, look at, it, look at him being very self-righteous in verse 12. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah says again, hear now, you house of David. Don't try the patience of God. And now he gives the sign. Now, we don't know who, in the immediate reference, who this child is that's being referenced in Isaiah chapter 7. We do know that ultimately, Matthew uses this verse to say, this is ultimately pointing to Christ. Remember what I said, prophecy can have at times an immediate fulfillment, and then later, an ultimate fulfillment. Remember that? That happens. So that's what's going on here in Isaiah 7. This child that is to be born is to be assigned to the southern kingdom of Judah that this northern oppression will not stand. And that when this child is born, only a couple years are going to take place until this northern confederation falls. Then after that northern confederation falls of the Assyri the, from the Syrians, then the Assyrians come and take over everything except for the south. Make sense? Let's do that again because I know it can be a little bit confusing. You start out in chapter 7. King Ahaz, not a very good king of Judah. All right? To the north of him, he's got problems with the kingdom of Israel. Their capital is Samaria. They're not following the Lord right now. They got a bunch of wicked kings. 
they're plotting to come and take over the south. They're with the Syrians because the Syrians don't want to be taken over by the Assyrians, okay? So they're plotting against the south. Ahaz is distressed. Isaiah shows up and says, basically, this isn't going to stand. The northern aggression isn't going to stand. And God's going to give you a sign that the people will be delivered in the short term here. What is the sign? It's going to be the sign of this child being born of a virgin, Emmanuel. We don't know exactly who that child eventually is in the immediate sense. Some say it's going to be Hezekiah. Some say Josiah. We're not exactly sure, but what we do know is that this northern conspiracy falls and fails. And that within several years of this child being born, what the prophet said came to pass. The people were delivered. But did they have ultimate deliverance? Yes or no? No, they did not. Because even after this time, in fact, the book of Isaiah deals with several time periods that the prophet is talking about. When you read through the entire book of Isaiah, sometimes it's talking about events that are happening in the 7th and 8th B.C. Other times it's talking events in the 5th and 6th B.C. It jumps around in terms of time. But we do know that for the distressed people, the people of Judah, that this is being geared at right here, yes, they were freed immediately from this aggression from the northern kingdom. However, there continued to be problems in the house of Judah. There continued to be wars and uh, captivities and such. And we know a couple hundred years later, the Babylonians come and overrun the southern kingdom. But then when you flip over to chapter 9 real quick, the other passage I looked at. Now, this passage in chapter 9 about a child being born might be hearkening back a little bit to chapter 7. But again, all of this is ultimately pointing towards the most full fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So now we have a picture here of literally a, a prophecy of Christ ruling over what we now know as New Covenant believers, essentially a new heaven and a new earth. Some will say, well, it's a millennium period, whatever. This is Christ ruling the people. And now the government is on his shoulders. And it says there will be no end. He will be on David's throne. So now we have, we're hearkening back to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was established between God and King David where he tells King David, there always is going to be a king that's going to be sitting on your throne. But there was a problem in that 586 B.C. there was no more kingdom because Isaiah eventually is going to prophesy the destruction of the southern kingdom because of their own wickedness over the centuries. So how could there be a king on his throne? Well, we're going to see that fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. So that is the background and context of Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. These messianic pro prophetic verses that we see did have an immediate fulfillment. It meant something to the people as being written to about the life and events and the politics and the wars of their ages. And it pointed to some short-term deliverance in the immediate sense. But Matthew shows there's a much greater deliverance that's going to be found in Christ. Now, if you want, you can follow along. I've got an outline here. We're not going to have it there. But first point I'm going to make is that God fulfilled his promised miracle to preserve his people in Isaiah chapter 7. Even though Ahaz was not a very good king, and later after this deliverance, 
when the when when they basically become a, a cooperator with with another kingdom that comes in, Ahaz is now taking up upon himself luxuries. He becomes very prideful. He's not following the Lord. Scripture alludes to the fact that he probably engaged in child sacrifice. Not a very good guy. But in spite of all this, and in spite of all the sin that was on the hands of the people, God fulfilled his promised miracle to fulfill his people, to preserve his people. Now, let me ask you this. What I just described to you, would you want to preserve that group of people? Would you? Would you look at that group of people and say, you know what? They are a group worth saving. Wicked kings, horrible practices, arrogance, perhaps cultic rituals. Yeah, let's go to bat for them. But let's now turn it around to us. Look at your life right now. I want you to do a little inventory on your life. Would other people think that you're worth saving? Would other people think that you're worth redeeming? Again, sometimes it's a lot easier for us to look at other people and say, God, smite them, strike them down, be done with them, but yet want grace and mercy for ourselves. Thankfully, God is outside of our human whims and pettiness, and He looks down and sees, yes, flawed people, but sinners in need of a Savior. So in Isaiah chapter 7, He preserves them from destruction, and He preserves them from hopelessness. He preserved them from the destruction of the north, and He preserves them from the hopelessness that we will be no more. Our kingdom, our land will be taken from us. In fact, even being taken from us by our own brothers who are now warring with us and working with these pagan kingdoms and armies. The people were preserved. And even when the Assyrian Empire came and gobbled up the north, they got to the south doorstep, but they were not able to overrun the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians were a brutal group, if you read about them. Literally taking people by fish hooks and dragging them away. When Scripture uses that imagery, it wasn't just using colorful analogies. That was the type of things that the Assyrian army did to their captives. But the people were preserved. However, let's say to use an analogy, let's say however you define good government comes to America and the world. Let's say some of our temporal problems that we have today in America in 2019, almost 2020, let's say some of those things dissipate within three years by the time a child is born has the ability to know right and wrong. Within that short amount of time, some of those problems disappear. There still is an ultimate problem of the heart. There still is an ultimate problem of sinners in need of a Savior. There's still an ultimate problem of nations that need the Lord. There still is an ultimate problem of spiritual ignorance and darkness that can exist. Which is why in Isaiah 9, which we'll get to in just a little bit, it's pointing to an ultimate king who's going to sit on an ultimate throne, Jesus Christ. The most perfect representation of perfection, of goodness, of salvation. So God, we are seeing miracles happening even in the immediate sense in Isaiah 7 and 9. The miracle of preservation. There's going to be four things I point out here, since you don't have an outline. Preserve, deliver, rule, and save. That's the first miracle I see 
in chapter 7 9, the miracle of preservation. Point number two, God fulfilled His promised miracle to deliver His people. So we had preservation. He didn't just preserve them, spare them. He delivers them. He delivers them from their enemies. And that's where we get to this very famous prophecy in chapter uh, 7, verses 13 through 15. Again, in the immediate sense, it's talking about the miracle, quote-unquote. In my outline, there's scare quotes here because one could say, well, it doesn't defy the natural sciences and this and that. The people were at war and they were, they were delivered from their enemies. You know, perhaps, and maybe you've heard this, that in the Hebrew, the word alma that is referring to how it's been rendered virgin in our English translations is really just referring to a young woman. Has anybody heard that one? Yep. So, and, and that, that actually is true, and that might be, in the most immediate sense of the prophecy, what was perhaps taking place. It might not have been a, a virgin birth like we later saw with the virgin birth. Very well, this could be talking about a young woman, an Alma, who gives birth to a child. Again, could be Hezekiah, could be Josiah, and then within several years, some of these problems dissipate. That could be because that is how the Hebrew could be rendered for that passage. Because that word doesn't have a perfect English equivalent in the Hebrew. Now, once we get to the Greek, the way the Greek uses the word, there's no question it's using it virgin. Somebody who has never had, there's some kids in here, relations. Okay? That is how the Greek is using that word. In the Hebrew, it very well could be somebody who is just young and has a child and gives birth to a son. So somebody could say, well, that's, that's no miracle right there. And the people were delivered, so what? But yet, God kept his promises, as I said, the theme. Judah was delivered. But this is, now you fast forward to the book of Matthew, this is talking about a literal virgin who had never, did not know her husband-to-be in that way, Joseph, which is why Joseph was a little bit alarmed when Mary says, I'm pregnant, but I haven't been with anybody else. See, the people might have been a little bit simple in some ways, but they, they weren't totally idiots like sometimes skeptics will allege. He knew that if she's pregnant, well, there's one of two options. She's been with somebody else, or this angel story is true. I'm going to go with option number one until Joseph has his own encounter, his own divine encounter, which tells him, yes, this young woman who is most favored by God, this is, this is real. This is happening. So Matthew reaches back hundreds of years into the Old Testament prophets and says this passage, which did have its immediate fulfillment, this is ultimately what it was pointing to. Jesus Christ. And the word Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, the second person of the eternal trinity, Jesus Christ, is now with us. The incarnation has occurred. One of the greatest miracles, even in Scripture, and there's many of them. But you need this virgin birth in the New Testament. You need this Savior who is both fully, not just fully human, but also fully God. 
So we see, even in Isaiah 7, which we know later from later on in Scripture, that we see here the miracle of humanity's deliverance in Christ. Because all of these other events that are taking place, again, they just had, the Old Testament is all pointing towards a greater reality. The Old Testament is preparatory for the greater reality to come. The whole sacrificial system, the prophets, all, all of this was pointing towards the cross. All of it was pointing towards Jesus. All of it was leading up to the first coming of Christ. All of it was leading up to Christmas. And let me just add this side note. Historically, was Jesus actually born on December 25th? That's the right answer, Barb. Probably not. Most scholars would say he was probably born sometime that we would think of spring or summer. Why did they adopt December 25th? Why did December 24th we call Christmas Eve? Well, yes, it was an old pagan celebration that the Christians co-opted and made their own. We do that kind of stuff all the time where we are reclaiming what the culture has broken and making it one of our making it our own. But we don't know exactly when he was born, but we do know the symbolism of of, of what Christmas is and what it means. And if you look at the roots, it is going back even here to what you might think is some of the obscure issues in Israel and Judah's history. The people were delivered, and it pointed to a greater deliverance later on in Christ. Now, if you want to flip over to chapter 9, chapter 9 is a little bit different than chapter 7. Chapter 7 is talking about some very specific events that is about to occur in Israel and Judah's history or future at the time it was written. It's talking about some very specific events with some very specific historical actors. Gives you some very specific timelines that you can infer. Once we get to chapter 9, we don't have necessarily, we don't have a specific timeline. What we do have, though, is the people who were presently distressed. It is pointing them towards a perfect time of restoration, letting them know that this is not the, the here and now is not all that there is. And that's something that we have to remind ourselves of as well, because the people who are reading this, they might have had different struggles than you and I, but many of them had struggles. Many of them struggled to find hope in the world that they lived in. How many of us just sometimes, I, I, as much as I like current events, just detest even just turning on the local news. Almost every time I do, it's sadness and tragedy. And sometimes when I look at the national news, I just want to smack my head into a brick wall. When I look at global news, it frightens me what I see. But I'm always reminded that what I see right in front of me is not all that there is. In fact, even now, currently, Despite all that, God is moving and active and doing amazing things in houses of worship around the world today. And he's doing amazing things outside of houses of worship. On a given daily basis, he is working in the lives of people, changing hearts and lives, changing communities. We're seeing repentance happen. We're seeing new churches open. We're seeing families that are being brought to Christ, people being saved, people being baptized. Let us not lose hope with just what is in front of us. Because Scripture is telling us to keep hope alive, keep faith alive. And in chapter 9, we see first we talked about he, his promised miracle to preserve in chapter 7, then his promised miracle to deliver. 
And now in chapter 9, we see his promised miracle to rule. It says of this wonderful counselor, everlasting father, this prince of peace, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. They didn't realize it there, but this is talking about the messianic reign, which was ultimately going to come with not the first coming, but the second coming. You see, gentle little baby Jesus was born in a manger, worshipped by or celebrated by those that came around him. A defenseless little babe that when King Herod finds out about it, we see one of the great historical tragedies of the slaughter of the innocents. Herod says, find every child to and under and kill them. And there's a big difference between a two-year-old and a newborn, but Herod wants to play it safe, wants to get rid of all of the children because they pose a risk and a threat to him. So in the beginning phase of the incarnation after the birth of Jesus, he is in some senses we might think little and defenseless, but he's being protected by the Father. And the Magi warn Mary and Joseph. But you see, when he comes a second time, he's going to be the rider on the white horse. And out of his mouth will come a two-edged sword. And he will strike down his enemies and the enemies of God. The first time he came, the world is going to look a little bit different than when the next time he comes. Now, after Isaiah wrote his entire work here, depending on your view of authorship, I tend to take an earlier view of Isaiah's authorship, but we do know at, at a certain given point, there was no kingdom anymore in Judah. The kingdom was done. And we might think, well, that's just a peculiar historical detail. No, it's not, because once the kingdom was no more, that's around the time that the second temple was destroyed. Now there is no sacrificial system. There is no more high priest and sacrifices and this and that and the other thing. Yes, it was renovated. It was constructed again, destroyed in 70 AD again, but it's, it's no more. And hundreds of years before that, there was no, no kings anymore sitting on the throne. What you had was Judah becomes a vassal state of its various overlords and has a, a degree of tolerance from the different empires, but never again there was a kingdom. However, so the, the Israelites, the, the Judahites, I should say, later on, were looking. That's why when Jesus ascended back to heaven, the disciples say, are you at this time now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're thinking of passages like this. Who's going to be sitting on David's throne? The answer is Jesus, and it's a throne way better than anyone that humans can create on this earth. He's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit are ruling in power and in glory forever and ever and ever. So even in hundreds of years before the first coming, we see a picture of the incarnation, and not just the incarnation, but the resurrected Christ ruling and reigning for all time. So that's the third promise we see in Isaiah 7 to 9. Again, his promised miracle to preserve. Second, his promised miracle to deliver. Third, his promised miracle to rule. And his promised miracle to save in chapter 9. God fulfilled his promised miracle to save his people. Salvation to people in Judah at this time just meant free us from our enemies. Salvation to them meant safe and secure boundaries. Salvation to them meant reestablishing the Davidic throne after it fell later on after this. Salvation to them meant a good economy when you land flowing of milk and honey and things are comfortable. 
But again, this is pointing to something greater. Salvation in Jesus Christ. So what we see chapter 9 ultimately talking about is salvation from the darkness and distress through Christ. Again, when this was written, there was darkness and distress. The people are struggling. There are some of you probably that struggled to wake up in the morning and come here today because of things that are going on in your life. There are some of you watching this right now that can't be here because you're ill or something's going on in your life that just prevented you from being here. Many of us come here today with fears and frustrations and anxieties. Some are battling sickness. Some are battling economic anxiety. We have other brothers and sisters around the world that are dealing with something very similar to what the people dealt with here. Caught between war zones, famines, starvations. We have it pretty good, those of us that are sitting here, if we're to be honest. But just like this passage gave hope to the people then, it gives hope to the people now that regardless of your situation, that there is salvation through the cross. There is salvation through Jesus Christ. And ultimately, salvation is much more than secure land boundaries and a king and all this stuff. We know that through Christ, we have salvation from sin and death. In my men's group this past Wednesday, we were, even, we were going a little bit further in our passage on chapter Genesis 3 from last week. And I talked about what is the great, the most tragic element from Genesis 3. Is it physical death or spiritual death? Is it that one day that people are going to physically die, or is it the tragedy of spiritual death? Because I know when I lose somebody in the family of God, I'm sad just because I'm not with them. But I know that there is a great hope for them. With spiritual death, there is a deep longing, aching. And again, only God knows the souls of men and women. But this, with spiritual death, that's a far bigger tragedy, that somebody would not be in the presence of God, that they would be consigned to judgment. That is frightening. That is distressing. But through Christ, we have salvation, not just from ultimate physical death. The point of the Bible isn't just how to make yourself avoid any human pain and suffering and not die. That's not the focus, or how to escape this world through some rapture and, you know. The focus of salvation is, number one, first, making the optimal difference in this life right now in the kingdom of God with all the hopes, hurts, and failures that can come in this life. But it points to also the greater reality of salvation from sin that Christ went on the cross and salvation from death because Christ overcame death, hell, sin, Satan, and the grave. So if you're here today like this original audience and dealing with various anxieties and dealing with a feeling of hopelessness, or dealing with demons in your life, in conclusion, I say hand over the darkness to the cross in Christ. All of us here have our various darknesses or troubles, t- troubled times that we are walking through or have walked through or will walk through. Hand them over to the cross. Hand them over to Jesus. Because what we see through the thrust of Scripture, though life will throw so much at us, greater is He who is in you. Greater is he who has overcome the world. Christ says, behold, I have overcome the world. And he's overcome death, hell, sin, and the grave. Walk away with that hope as the praise team comes forward for one final song.